Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Parenting in a Modern World, Linda. What does that mean? Wow, it means that it's different than it used to be in the old-time world. Yeah, well, I think that in the farm days, it was easy not to spoil your kids because you had a lot of work for them to do. Don't you think we have a lot of work for our kids to do today, though, or is it just different, or what do you think? I mean, modern world. We do have a lot of work for our kids to do. In fact, our high school kids are so busy, they can barely look up with all the activities they have and studies and so on, which wasn't the way it used to be. But speaking of farm uh, farm life, I have to say that I was talking to a friend last week who I don't know very well, but she's from a family of 10. And 10 kids? 10 children. Wow. And she's one of the siblings, and she said she was talking to her brother one day, and he was upset about something, and he started mumbling something, and the essence of what he was saying was he thought that the his parents, their parents, had all those children so that they could work, so that they needed them to work on the farm. Wait, how long ago was this? Work. It was just a generation ago, just, you know. Oh, they lived on a farm, Our though? generation. They lived on a farm. Oh, yeah. I well, mean, generations before that, they did have the children just yeah. so they could work. But this, this particular gal, was, we love her, and she's just so cute. She said, I said to him, where were you raised? I was raised in the same house, and that thought never occurred to me. So I think parenting is interesting, but also being a child in a family is interesting because children perceive different things in the same household. It's just fascinating. Well, Linda, do you think that parents have less children today because they're not farmers and they don't need farmhands, or do you think it's because there's bigger seatbelt laws now and they can't get enough seatbelts in their vehicle? Well, for starters, it's fewer children and next next it is we have a friend who believes there are smaller families because the dads have started really helping with the families and realizing how hard it is <laughs> they're saying uh, no more I can't do this anymore I think that's a pretty interesting concept but there are lots of reasons, lots of reasons, economic reasons, uh, seatbelt reasons, all kinds of reasons for small well, families. Well here's I'm going back to your comment about living on the farm, we feel kind of like we're living on a primitive farm right now without electricity because our power went out about four hours ago and we're sitting in our basement so we get far away from the um, Smoke smoke detectors that are going off, the smoke alarms, and we're sitting here with a flashlight. It's completely dark. And uh, we're talking into Linda's cell phone, hoping the battery lasts until the end of the show. So there you go. It's crazy. You don't realize how much you really depend on electricity. We're leaving as soon as we finish this show for Mexico, actually. And somebody's got to come over and turn on my dryer because I have a load of wet clothes in the dryer. The Internet doesn't work. It is amazing how much we rely on electricity. First world problems. That's what we always say. That's what that's what we say to each other when somebody says, "Oh man, I'm so upset. I can only get 800 channels on my TV, and the one I really want to watch isn't on here, or something like that." <laughs> or maybe some of you have seen the website 
uh, firstworldproblems.com, and there's a teenager there that says, my iPhone won't fit in my skinny jeans. I mean, really, we do have a lot of complaints about life uh, in the first world that are silly compared to the problems that people face in the third world. And we're actually working right now on a book on gratitude and on teaching children gratitude because when you think about it, that's kind of the opposite of entitlement. I mean, entitlement is taking things for granted and being grateful is you know, really appreciating everything you have. And, man, do our kids, do all kids today really need a big dose of that. It's so uh, it's so interesting that you, you could, I mean, it's fun to talk to kids about that. You know, just uh, pick a time like today when your power's out and say, um, hey, do you think that if you'd been a king living in 7th century London, and you had servants, and you had horses, and you had a castle, and you had knights in shining armor, and all of that. Do you think you'd trade it all if you could have electricity? Would you trade all that for electricity? And you probably would. I would. Um, I don't like those dank old castles. I still worry about Queen Elizabeth II, who sat in the Tower of London freezing to death, Oh, for so long with a straw for a bed, and then they cut her head off anyway. You still worry about her? I still think about her. I hate being cold. I hate being cold. <laughs> well, anyway, what we wanted to talk about today, and you wouldn't know it by what we've said so far, stream of consciousness, but we want to chat a little bit about the very first parenting book we ever wrote in our entire lives. Many years ago, when we were young parents living in McLean, Virginia, outside Washington, D.C., and we had a couple of little kids, and a third one was on the way, and we were getting bombarded with all kinds of advertising and promotion for all the various preschools that were in the area. My word, there must have been thousands of them. And they all wanted us to get in there and enroll our two-year-olds and our three-year-olds in a dancing preschool or a Montessori school or a learn-to-read early school or a learn-to-do-science-and-math early school or whatever. There were so many of them. And um, it was almost as though they were saying to us, look, your kids are already two and three years old. If you don't get going and get them on the fast track for education, they will never get into Harvard. They will never be successful. They will never keep up with their peers. So here's our school, and it only costs $500 a month, and you better get on the waiting list because if you don't, it's all over for your little kids. Your child will be a failure. I remember that so clearly. And um, that was about the time when we realized that um, that's crazy. I mean, you do have to have your children ready to go to kindergarten, and they do have to know a certain amount of stuff, and it's fun and so on. Um, Some read so easily, and you're so proud because they can read by the time they go to kindergarten. Some struggle with reading. We had two or three that were in resource all the time in elementary school because it really was hard for them to um, learn to read. But a couple of things happened to us. One is that we had 
a friend, a couple of friends actually, that were elementary school teachers, and we asked them, we said, hey, what about it? Do, do kids that come out of a preschool environment where they've got a two or three year head start on reading and doing math and all that kind of thing, do they, do they stay ahead in school and, and is that the thing to do? And both of these friends said, you know what, after about the first or second grade, everyone's caught up with everyone else and it doesn't really make much difference academically whether they went to a preschool or not. And so we started thinking about that. Well, I think it's third or fourth grade, actually. It takes them a while to catch up if they didn't get a good start. So, And there are some issues with that. And so we're not saying if you're... If your children are brilliant, that you've made a big mistake by teaching them to read. Um, we're not saying that. We're just saying that there may be some things that are so important to teach preschoolers that we sometimes overlook because we only have them in our home for four or five years, which is a minute. I mean, those of you mothers who are, have three preschoolers at home are saying, sure, might seem like a minute to you, but it doesn't seem like a minute to me. Well, I was going to say the other two things besides the inputs from these um, kindergarten teachers that we knew and elementary teachers that we knew had to do with the fact that we were also talking to some friends of ours, and we, we actually had a little group, a kind of a study group and so on, and we posed the question one night, what is the single most important thing that you want to do with your preschoolers? Because, just like you said, Linda, you can teach a preschooler anything. They're like a little sponge. They can absorb pretty much anything. You can teach them ancient hieroglyphics if that's really what you want them to learn. So the question was, if you could give your kids any gift, your preschoolers, if you could wave a little magic wand over their head and bestow something on them, what would it be? And interestingly, no one said, you know, academic brilliance, although that would be nice. No one said, uh, you know, uh, to be the best athlete on the face of the earth, although that would be nice. No one said that. When it really came down to you can just give your your preschoolers one thing, what would it be? The answer became obvious. I'd like them to be happy. I'd like them to, you know, be well-adjusted and happy and, and experience joy in their lives. And, and then the third thing that I was going to add to that is a lot of these parents who were friends of ours and ourselves included, you intimated this a minute ago, Linda, were, were saying, hey, you know what? We really like these little kids, and we've got them for a short number of years before the school system kind of starts encroaching and taking them away from us for large parts of every day. Are we sure we want to give up this precious time we have with them while they're little preschoolers, or do we want to kind of hang on to them and have them be at home for a little while? I also remember during that period reading it, a book that went the opposite direction and said we start kids in school way too early. We really ought to wait until they're eight before they go to school at all. So all these things were weighing on us, and it led us toward an interesting destination. It did. And um, 
it was the very first book we wrote because we collected, well, because we were struggling with our own kids and also collected ideas and decided really the best thing we can give our kids is to have them feel joy when they're little and really enjoy life, the joy of their bodies and the joy of the earth. And we're going to go into that a little bit more in the second half of the show because there are 12 joys that we developed and it really is amazing what a difference it's made in a lot of life. And one reason we want to talk a little about that in the second half of the show today is that we are leaving in the morning to go down to Mexico City to speak to a couple of big schools there. They're elementary schools that keep on going right through high school. And uh, they have become aware of Joy Schools and of our book, Teaching Children Joy, and they want to work into their curriculum, their school curriculum, a little bit more of the learning and practicing and developing of the capacities for happiness and for joy. So what's interesting to me is it sort of moved in the opposite direction of what was happening there back in Washington, D.C. Instead of people saying, wow, Let's get our kids more academic. Now some of these high-class academic schools are saying, hey, let's slow down with the academics and give them some life skills and try to help them to be happier. So we'll be back right after the break. Ayers on the Road. Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. And we're back. We're talking about the importance of teaching children joy today. It really is a topic that doesn't come up very often. And with a new year, we thought it would be a nice time to, to talk about it and to raise awareness to the importance of how great that is to teach kids to be happy. So we went back and gave you a little history in the first half of the show. And just picking up on that again, once we... Once we had sort of decided, okay, look, we've got these preschoolers for just a couple of years here. Instead of teaching them the pushy early academics or the uh, how to play the violin or whatever, uh, let's focus on teaching them joy. Then, then the next question was, what in the world do you mean by joy? I mean, that's pretty, pretty ethereal, pretty pie in the sky. Let's make our kids happy. Whoop-de-doo. Well, as we analyzed it, what we came to believe, and it helped us in our own personal lives as well as in trying to teach our kids, is that there were various kinds of joy, various types of joy. And what do we mean by that, Linda, various kinds of joy? Well, you know, first of all, there are physical joys, the joy of the body and the joy of the earth, and just teaching kids to really relish what they're seeing around them is such a beautiful place that we live. And just pointing out, you know, in the fall, we like to point out that no two beautiful leaves are the same. They're, they're all unique. Every leaf is unique. Every stone is unique. And they are unique just because they're children of God. And it really is fun to have that kind of register in their minds. So, so in other words, the first kind of joy, we, we sort of divided it into five types. And the first one, as Linda points out, were the physical joys, the joy of the body, the joy of the earth, the joy of really seeing and appreciating both of them. 
And then we decided the second kind of obvious one, once we were into that framework, was the mental joys, the joy of imagination and creativity, the joy of setting goals and accomplishing them. In other words, the joys that you could experience, if you will, with your brain. And we decided about that point that when kids feel a certain kind of joy, they will want it again. It will be addictive to some degree. So if a little kid sets a small, simple goal and accomplishes it and feels joy, then right away he wants to set another goal. Now, we did decide, just in preface to this, that there are some of these joys that the children teach us, and imagination and creativity is one of them. Can you think of a more imaginative person in the world than a three-year-old? We just spent uh, some time last week with a three-year-old and a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, and, and it is just magic that the preschoolers just have no boundaries as far as imagination and creativity. And... Um, in fact, I handed my cell phone to one of them. I don't remember if I mentioned this last week. I don't think so. But anyway, I handed it to a two-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old, and they brought it back to me in a half an hour, and I thought, that's odd. The battery's not dead. Well, they had gone in and done some very creative things with my phone. I don't know how they know how to do that, but they do. Anyway. Um, well, I took her phone over to the Apple store to get it fixed in the the genius over there looked at it for a while, and then he said, some little kid has had a heyday in your settings. <laughs> and they've set for the blind, for the hard of hearing, for the magnification, everything that could be set was set. So um, they, they do have some amazing things that they can do. But just going along with what Richard said about goal setting, you know, we thought, oh, I don't know, you can't teach a three- and a four-year-old to set goals, but we were amazed as we kind of gave them the challenge to do that. And we've had three-year-olds make a goal to quit sucking their thumb. One of our little girls was sucking her thumb still at three and a half, almost four. And she decided she wanted to quit sucking her thumb, which is so great because she had ownership of that goal. And she had a little chart. We put a little chart up on the refrigerator and every hour she went without sucking her thumb, we'd fill in the dot and so on and lots of things to help her. And then she came to me one afternoon and she said, Mommy, will you please put my blanket up on top of the refrigerator where I can't reach it? Because if I have my blanket, I have to suck my thumb. And I just thought, whoa, that is a pretty sophisticated goal setter right there. And it was amazing. She did finally quit sucking her thumb. So you get the idea. We were trying to segment these joys. So you had the physical joys and you had the mental joys. And like Linda points out, in each case, there were some of those in within each category where we learn from kids and others where we teach them. But, you know, that's the progress of learning joy. And then, as you might guess, there were social joys, the joy of making friends, the joy of being polite and kind to other people, the joy of helping those in need of help. And, and again, all of these joys we were discovering could be translated down to a very, very basic level, a level so basic that a three-year-old could actually experience them. 
And so about that point in writing the book, we really got excited. We started thinking, you know, we've we've really come up with something that we want to use with our own kids. Our goal is a little more clarified now. We have a goal to raise really happy children. And then we started understanding that that goal was also pretty practical because a child who's happy or who's well-adjusted or who's feeling good about him or herself is basically a preschooler who's prepared to go to school. Uh, we actually started with a physical um, school. I mean, parents started calling us after we did the book and said, we need more than just some ideas in the book. I mean, we've, we've done this and it's fun and it's working, but we're wondering if you can't give us some more specific ideas of how to teach these joys. So we started with a little school up in Logan, Utah. Um, Richard's mother was an early childhood development um, major, and so she wrote some lesson plans. People came out of the woodwork and said, I'll do music. Another one said, I'll do art. Another one said, I'll write stories. And we just collected a, a really extraordinary group of people who really wanted to help teach those joys. So we started in that little physical school. We left the country for three years. We went to England. And when we came back, the school had figured out what worked, what didn't work, and so on. And then we put it into lesson plans for parents. And we called it Joy Schools, which sounds really kind of cheesy. Oh, it sounds great, Linda. And parents parents started feeling like, hey, I, you know, it solved another problem for them, which is that preschoolers were too expensive. And the idea of a co-op school where the mothers would rotate as the teachers, sometimes the dads, by the way, not as often as I'd wish, but every week a different mom would be in charge and she'd have the kids at her home and she would have the lesson plan, which would include the music and the art projects and everything. So even if she was not a teacher or didn't have much confidence in herself as a teacher, she could follow that lesson plan and do a great job. And the thing, to make a long story short, blossomed, and there have now been hundreds of thousands of kids who have become graduates of Joy School. And we love that idea because what we're thinking about right now and what we're going to be doing over the next week down in Mexico is essentially saying to teachers and parents, it's not just for preschoolers. All of these kinds of joy can be focused on for kids of any age, or for parents. It's so true. We uh, we do have those lesson plans still available, though. Actually, we've never really advertised, and as Richard said... Until today, this is our first time. <laughs> we've never put an advertisement in, in a newspaper or anything that I can think of, and uh, it just goes by word of mouth because it works. And so if you are interested in having your child in a little joy school, and they've just started a new semester, like this week, um, you can go to joyschools.com. Be sure you put an S on yeah, that, joyschools.com. And uh, you'll get a sample lesson plan. You can see everything there is that you need to know about whether or not you can do that. You just gather two or three of your moms that are your friends and say, hey, let's do this with our kids. Sometimes it's just two moms. Sometimes just one mom does it. Sometimes we had seven one year, and uh, I think they were all boys. That was a wild year in joy school. But 
Um, it's so fun. We had so much fun, and so much is provided for you. It does take some preparation, and it's a two-and-a-half-hour program, and then there's a half-hour of uh, kindergarten preparedness. If you have kids that are getting ready for kindergarten, that teaches them some skills that they really need to start. But it really has been quite a miracle how this has really passed by word of mouth. Now, here's my here's my little revelation. This might... This might surprise you, Linda, I don't know, but um, I really think that joy schools and the idea of teaching children joy is actually a more useful and progressive and unique idea than any of our other books. We, as many of you know, we've done a whole series of teaching your children books. One is teaching your children responsibility. One is teaching your children sensitivity. One is teaching your children values. But of all of those, the one I like best and the concept that I think is most interesting when you really think about it for a while is teaching your children joy because... That's the way. That's the thing that can be applied across the board. Like when we're we're with this school tomorrow and the next day, and with the teachers and the administrators and the parents and parent-teacher meetings, I think what we're going to try to emphasize is: look, why can't math be taught from a standpoint of joy? It sounds a little funny. Let me explain what I mean. Why can't spelling be taught with the concept of joy? Why can't social studies be taught with the concept of joy instead of trying so hard to do it in other ways. And so in this last minute and a half that we've got on the show, we want you to ponder that just a little bit with us. We want you to think to yourself, wow, maybe instead of a teacher beating subjects into the kids' heads and saying, if you don't learn this, you won't be able to function in society, maybe the whole tone could change and a teacher could say, you know, this is really fun. This is so interesting. Here's what you can do with math or with science or with history or whatever to help you feel better, to help you understand the world better, to help you have a feeling of joy and goodness about the world you live in. In other words, joy can be a paradigm for the way that we try to live our lives. So we hope you're feeling a lot of joy, not every day in every way, but certainly at least once a day. You have those joyful moments because if you have children in your home, it's inevitable. If you have grandchildren and you've talked to them this week, it's inevitable. We hope that you look for the joy in your lives because that is what makes all the difference. In fact, maybe that's a nice way to say it. Just think about the fact that joy is all around us, and kids remind us of it a lot, which is one of the blessings of having children. And all we have to do, both for ourselves and for our children, is become more aware of the joy which is already there. We'll see you next time on Ayers on the Road. 